welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Osprey Oriel Lake. Osprey is the founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, Weekend International, dedicated to accelerating a global women's climate justice movement. She works nationally and internationally with grassroots and indigenous leaders, policymakers, and scientists to promote climate justice, resilient communities, and a just transition to a decentralized, democratized energy future. Osprey serves on the Executive Committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and is the co-director of the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegations and actively leads weekends advocacy, policy, and campaign work in areas such as women for forests, divestment and just transition, indigenous rights, a feminist agenda for a Green New Deal, and UN forums. Osprey is the author of the award-winning book, Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. Hi, Osprey. Welcome to Revolutionary Women. How are you tonight? I'm really good. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great. Um, for those who don't know anything about you, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, living right now in Northern California on Coast Miwok lands. I'm uh, really honored to be a guest here in their territories. And I am the founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, or We Can International. And we work with women on the front lines, primarily of uh, climate change in different regions of the world. Wonderful. Thank you. And so, like you said, you're the founder and executive director of We Can. Have you always been an activist and advocate for climate change? Well, um, you know, I think it uh, it happened in stages. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in my youth, I was very aware of... Um, in the area where I grew up was in Mendocino County in the town of Mendocino on the coast of California. And the big issue there when I was growing up had to do with protecting the redwood forests. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, uh, that was some of the first campaigning that I did was to protect the redwoods. Wow. And uh, since then, you know, have been involved in, in various issues over time and eventually um, arrived at uh, working on, on the climate crisis. Wow. Okay. And what inspired you to create Weekend? Well, in, um, you know, in 2009, um, I had a, a sort of a middle ground of my career, if you were, will I, a will, where I was really doing a lot of work um, with art and storytelling mm. through art and uh, had been doing a lot of um, work with creating bronze sculptures that told a narration of our relationship with nature and I still really believe strongly that a big component of how we need to course correct in modern society is regenerating this narrative around how do we connect mm -hmm. with our, our living landscape and how do we understand we're part and particle of nature. Mm -hmm. So I was very involved with a lot of artwork to convey that story mm -hmm. because I think we have a, a deep need to have a worldview that really generates that understanding of our connection to nature. Um, but within that context, um, in 2009, um, I 
was very well aware of the climate negotiations, the United Nations annual climate negotiations that were going on in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Obama administration had just come in and there was just a lot of hope that, you know, with this new government and just the times that we were in, that there would be some real progress on uh, the climate crisis through that negotiation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, without going into a lot of detail, you know, governments walked away from that negotiation not moving at speed and scale, and certainly not with the climate justice framework. Mm. And I was out walking in the redwood forests, as I do, mm. and instead of feeling sort of this, this place of peace and calm inside, I, I really felt very, um, the sense of disorientation and, and this deep calling from nature that, you know, this was, this was a crisis moment. And, um, you know, literally in the course of, of several months, I stopped everything and did a lot of research on the climate crisis, environmental degradation, and to make a long story short, you know, through a lot of that research really identified that, um, women were playing a tremendous role in organizing and leadership and resistance, Mm -hmm. um, and efforts to resolve a lot of these um, interlocking crises of, of environmental degradation, the climate crisis, food security issues, water issues, and really were at the forefront of so many of the movements and yet still to this day very much unrecognized and, and not well positioned because of cultural norms concerning yeah. gender inequality. Yes. And so um, seeing the incredible role and incredible leadership uh, that women were holding, um, I realized that was a node that would really be powerful to focus on. So that's when I started, uh, you know, working at the nexus of women's leadership and climate solutions. That's really amazing. And how many um, are, uh, how many people are in, are part of WeCan? Um, that's a really good question. You know, we ha- uh, have a really large uh global network that has come out from different large events we've put together and many delegations we've had and our online events. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it, it depends on what we're doing. You know, Mm -hmm. we've done big global actions and then work in local communities. So Mm -hmm. um, at any one time, you know, people's engagement varies, but Mm -hmm. we have a very large uh, social media following um, and, uh, you know, we, we work both at the level of grassroots leadership mm-hmm. as well as the grass tops because we think it's really important to be able to to both represent frontline communities and indigenous and black and brown women and lift up their voices. Um, at the same time, it's really important that we can connect them mm-hmm. with um, with women who are at the top levels of, of business, financial institutions, and governments. So mm-hmm. we really work across many spheres mm-hmm. to ensure um, that there really is forward motion on these issues that we care about so much. Wow. Have you found that there's um, representation in underdeveloped countries as well, or is it more towards developed countries? Uh it's both. Okay. I mean, like I said, we work in, in a lot of different regions of the world, but mm-hmm. I think that, you know, our main focus is to to work with uh, women who are considered marginalized. Mm. Um, I think that we are looking at a time of really focusing on an intersectional analysis, meaning that um, the issues that have faced um, 
gender inequality also impact women of color and indigenous women even more so because of racism. And um, so, you know, we, it's really working at this um, level of understanding that we're in a lot of these crises because of the interlocking um, ideologies of colonization, Mm -hmm. racism, Mm -hmm. um, capitalism and patriarchy. And that um, this impacts, um, you know, women of color, indigenous women, um, the land, mm-hmm. um, um, in, in the same way. And so we really need to address all of these issues, um, at the same time. Yeah. I, I so agree. Thank you for that. So you mentioned that you're an artist and you created, um, some, you created monuments. Um, and I read that, so you're the founder and artist of, the International Chima Monument Project. So and they focus on nature and humanity. That what inspired you to create these monuments? And has what has the um, reactions been for about them? Um, as I was sort of mentioning earlier, you know, I really strongly believe that, you know, when we look at the 20,000 foot level of our crises, a lot of it has to do with um, as I mentioned, you know, this sense of modern day people being disconnected from nature and the mm-hmm. natural world. Yes. And without that connection, it's really difficult to fight for the water, fight mm-hmm. for the forest, stand mm-hmm. up for, you know, the clean air and the beauty that we want for our children and our children's children. Mm-hmm. And um, so the artwork and the monument project we're really having to do with, you know, how do we reconnect with each other? How do we reconnect with the natural world? How do we learn of a better code of conduct with, with the ecosystems of our planet? And um, how do we, we really change our worldview and relationship to a living landscape? Um, and so that was really, and continues to be, you know, a theme throughout my life and through, through, um, the Chima project as well as the book that I wrote, which is called Uprisings for the Earth, mm-hmm. Reconnecting Culture with Nature. Yes. And so I think this is like really foundational work. And it's like I said, at the 20,000 foot level. And I believe in that work and I continue to be inspired to continue those efforts. At the same time, on the other hand, you know, we're in urgent crises and the uh, IPCC report um, from scientists all over the world on 1.5 degrees mm-hmm. lets us know we're in this incredibly small, urgent window to act before we see tipping points um, through the climate crisis and environmental degradation yeah. that are going to be incredibly serious. I mean, we're already in an incredibly serious situation right now. Right. So um, most of my time now is devoted, you know, 24-7 to... Mm-hmm to the frontline fights um, in different regions of the world to protect water, to protect forests, mm-hmm. to, to shut down the fossil fuel industry, to do divestment work with global banks, to get them to quit funding and financing the fossil fuel industry. I mean, I think that there's a lot of different areas that we need to focus on, but you know, if we don't stop a lot of this harm, uh, there won't be space for any of the wonderful visions that we have of, of, of living a very different way with our earth than we are now. Yeah, wow. Um, so you mentioned your book, Uprisings, and um, 
I read two quotes from a review by Rianne Eisler, who is the author of The Chalice and the Blade and The Real Wealth of Nations. She said about your book, Uprisings for the Earth recreates creates new vibrant ground that holds within it keys to finding our way to a meaningful and vital relationship with the natural world and modern civilization. Within compelling and dy- dynamic verse, Lake makes a call to discover and uphold what she has named an earth etiquette. What does that term mean, at earth etiquette? Yeah, I was um, exploring in the first part of the book a way to uh, give um, people an opportunity to look at how we can be living in a respectful manner with mm-hmm. nature okay. instead of a dominator worldview of dominion over nature, sort of seeing a hierarchical approach where, you know, humans are here mm-hmm. to uh, ba- basically extract resources and use what we can from nature because we are superior to nature Hmm. and really flipping that around by saying we need a different earth etiquette, a different conduct with the earth, a different agreement with the natural world of respect, reciprocity, building relationship, and really seeing nature as our relatives, Mm -hmm. which they are the plants Mm -hmm. and the animals literally as our relatives and that we are needing this, uh, proper code of conduct of uh, respect and reciprocity with the natural world. So it's a, an exploration of what that earth etiquette looks like. Mm. Uh, okay. And so you also made some touch points about, about water. And if you don't mind, I'll read a quote from your book. Um, the blue-green flowing chorus reminds me that we cannot live without water. The simple and profound equation in this water is in this water is life. Yet the startling reality is that today more than 1 billion people worldwide do not have access to safe drinking water, resulting in nearly 2 million fatalities a year due to waterborne waterborne diseases. Most of these deaths are among children, with water scarcity increasing due to human population growth, pollution, and climate change. Clearly our relationship to water must change. That really hit me because we are so dependent on this resource. And we are, I mean, humans are primarily, we're made up of water. Now, do you think we're not doing enough to address the this resource, the scarcity of this resource, even with organizations like Charity Water, WaterAid, and Water.org? I mean, just to name a few. Yeah, I think that we need to understand that one of the front faces of the climate crisis is being shown right now to us through water. Mm. In certain regions, too much water and flooding. In other regions, drought Mm -hmm. and a terrible scarcity in water. And so I think water is mirroring to us, uh, reflecting back to us the crisis that we're in. And um, I think some, uh, you know, that we have to remember that a lot of the industrial practices we're engaged in right now are polluting water at a tremendous rate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to give some examples, I mean, I think one of the most powerful things that happened, you know, in the last five years is um, the powerful message that came from Standing Rock, uh, Mm -hmm. where I had spent time. And of course we had water protectors there Mm -hmm. standing up to protect the water. It was around the water and, um, 
fighting Dakota Access Pipeline and the Indigenous leaders right. who sent a call out all over the world, Niniwichoni, Niniwichoni, water is life, water is life, and really trying to say we can't be drilling these pipelines that always eventually leak mm-hmm. um, underneath our waterways mm-hmm. where you know we have precious left clean water on the planet. Right. Um, I think that we're not doing nearly enough right now. Um, indigenous leaders are on a, a big fight right now as we speak in Minnesota mm-hmm. uh, with a tar sands pipeline called Line 3 yeah. run by en- Enbridge Company. And it's the same thing. It's going to be uh, crossing like um, 200 waterways. And wow. uh, there's a huge indigenous-led fight um, you know, that we're very much in support of. Um, you know, trying to get the Biden administration to stop this pipeline because, mm-hmm. again, all these water crossings are very dangerous. Right. And, you know, the fossil fuel era needs to be over. As I was mentioning yeah. earlier, yeah. you know, scientists are telling us that we need to keep all remaining fossil fuels in the ground if we're going to be anywhere near um, adhering to the Paris Climate Agreement and staying below the dangerous, you know, two yeah. point. Uh, degree rise in global temperatures. And so, you know, it's about protecting this water. It's about protecting the climate. And I'll I'll also just close this part by saying that, you know, something that's really inspired me is uh, we do a lot of work around rights of nature, which is this idea that um, not only do we need human rights, which we do, and they get violated all the time. So we have a lot of work to do around human rights, um, but also that that nature has rights um, and that we need to respect the rights of nature and stop seeing nature as a commodity mm-hmm. and move uh, move nature out of the marketplace and into a place of creating the sacred systems of life and respecting water and air and the forest as, as the living beings that they are. And in the course of that work, I had the opportunity to go to New Zealand mm-hmm. and meet with um, uh, Maori indigenous people there oh. who were able to establish a form of rights of nature laws um, in New Zealand really? with, the Wong- with the Wanganui River. And they were able to establish with the government a um, what they call um, personhood huh. for the Wanganui River because not metaphorically or mm-hmm. poetically, but in reality, they, they view the Wanganui River as their ancestor Mm. and so they view the river as as their relative as a place that they were born from as 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 a part of their family Mm -hmm. and so they were able to establish um a form of rights of nature law with 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 that river having personhood Mm -hmm. and they have a beautiful saying which is i am the river and the river is me Mm. i am the river and the river is me as a way of really you know, this healing around understanding our, our relationship to the water and that we are water mm-hmm. and, and the water is our relative, our ancestor. Wow, that's that's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, so with that, I mean, you, you so the G7 summit just happened and so they had outlined these um, pledges that they're planning on doing about committing to net zero no later than 2050. Um having the collective emissions over the two decades to 2030, um, you know, conserving or protect at least 30% of our land and oceans by 2030. Um, 
why why is it taking so long and why is it so hard for us you know to to recognize that this is this is really like it's it's why is it going too far why why does it have to why do we have to wait for so long i i that that's the main thing that i want to ask why does it have to take that long for us to get to where we need to be Oh, it's such a big question, an important one. I mean, um, I mean, if New Zealand can do so, it, I don't understand why, you know. Um, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, the sh- it's a very long answer, but a short version is it's all about the money. Mm. It's all about the money. Wow. So it's about power and money. And, you know, so, um, you know, this is why we see the youth like Credit Thunberg mm-hmm screaming at the top of her lungs that we need to understand that we're an emergency and start acting like we're an emergency. Yeah. And until that moment happens, governments are not going to move at speed and scale Hmm. and, you know, continue to have mechanisms to kick the can down the road because they refuse to look at the emergency that it is and then devise all means necessary to act upon that. And it's very difficult because it means that we need to confront the economic frameworks that we're operating in right now. And Mm -hmm. we have economic frameworks all over the planet that are based on endless economic material growth. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as long as we continue to have corporations that demand quarterly results um, Mm -hmm. and operate within that system. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to sh- to change the trajectory mm-hmm. because everyone still wants to have their cake and eat it too, if you will. Yeah. And um, so, you know, this is why you also hear indigenous people saying, you know, you can't eat oil. Yeah. You know, you can't yeah. eat money. Yeah. So it's it's a very deep paradigmatic change that has to occur where the systems that we have right now, whether they're legal system, economic systems, or governance structures, really are not capable in the way that they are right now to -hmm. take on this crisis. So, you know, your program is called Revolutionary Women. I mean, we we need a revolution here of our frameworks that we're operating in because they're not equipped to move at the level that they need to and prioritize what needs to be prioritized um, at this critical juncture of an existential crisis for humanity. And then on top of all of that, we need to ensure that equity is involved and that we respect those who are being impacted first and worst um, and that, that, that their voices are centered. So right now, you know, you still have a paradigm in which, you know, primarily there is white supremacy mm-hmm. and the impacts that we're feeling of the climate crisis and other issues around water and forest are mm-hmm. experienced by indigenous people or black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. And that really um, allows these systems to continue because for a lot of the people who have power and are making decisions, mm-hmm. there are sacrifice zones and sacrifice lands and sacrifice mm-hmm. peoples where a lot of this resource extraction wow. and harm can occur out there somewhere over there, mm-hmm. but not with them. Right. And so right. that's why we've got to, you know, really keep 
moving this agenda forward of ensuring that frontline communities are heard and centered Mm -hmm. because there should not be sacrificed people in sacrifice zones and sacrifice zip codes. It just should not be allowed. And, um, and this is part of how we can, you know, center those voices and ensure the crisis and urgency and the youth are heard. Mm. Well, well, okay. So you would think that with the pandemic that we had since, well, that, you know, that came upon us on 2019, that it would make a shift in, in people's way of thinking and how, I mean, do you think, first of all, do you believe that the pandemic has affected climate change and nature? And I, I'm just baffled that, you know, with everything that we've gone through with the pandemic, it still hasn't resonated that this is an emergency, that this is what, you know, this is, they're all interconnected. So, I mean, do you think that, what, I, do we think, do you think that we're at a loss right now in terms of what, resolutions can be done uh do you mean resolutions around the pandemic or i'm not sure in terms of of well with the pandemic do you think that it has affected um the way we are looking at climate change and nature um in terms of how it's affected our well maybe that's not maybe, maybe that's not the question i mean so with the pandemic that we've, we're experiencing, um, does it correlate with what's going on right now with climate change and, and, and how it's affecting our natural resources? Well, I know that there was, you know, when everyone was, um, you know, more on lockdown and sheltering in place, there mm-hmm. was definitely you know, an observation that, you know, there were, there was a drop in use of fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And there were, you know, all over the world, different areas where nature was able to heal. And there were areas where, you know, flora and fauna uh, were able to flourish and begin to, Yeah. yeah, regenerate. So I think it really shows that, um, you know, that we can slow the world down, so to speak, in terms of our, you know, ferocious activities, mm-hmm. um, and that nature can heal. So I think that was a beautiful, not, not, not that it happened for a good reason. Obviously right. the pandemic is a, it's a horrific occurrence and, mm-hmm. and tragedy and, and huge, huge, huge grief and losses from that. But in terms of demonstrating, um, that, mother earth can heal herself and mm-hmm. that the plants and animals can flourish in a different, um, landscape. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that we were shown that. Yeah. I thought that was really beautiful when I started seeing photos of like, wow, you know, like all this growth and, and like nature was really showing us that, okay, you know, if you just stop what you're doing, <laughs> I can keep, you know, making this earth that you're living in, um, be here for you for the next hundreds of years, you know, but it's, it's really, I don't know, it's heartbreaking to know that there's like so much that, you know, if we didn't, um, I guess if we didn't meddle <laughs> with, with what's going on in nature would be, would be fine. So, um, so what, can you mention a time when you thought 
you needed to do something that could affect your life and others? Um, I mean, mostly as what I was saying earlier, you know, about um, when I really realized that Mm -hmm. uh, the climate negotiations and Copenhagen were not going to to really resolve things at speed and scale for the climate crisis, you know, Mm -hmm. and starting weekend was really a response to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm really honored and thrilled to be able to work with women from all over the world, um, incredible women leaders that inspire me every day. You know, um, Patricia Gualinga from Ecuador, who is a woman, a Quisho woman from Sariaco, who with her people have, you know, fended off um, fossil fuel extraction in their lands to Nima Namandu, who is from, um, she's uh, one of our coordinators that we can, who mm. works in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we're reforesting areas that have been completely um, logged out, clear-cut logging, and we're reforesting there. Wow. And while we're growing these new trees, mm-hmm. um, we're protecting a large old growth forest area from, from uh, human use. And, mm. you know, to, um, there's just, you know, so many women, the women right now, uh, um, Winona LaDuke and Tara Hauska fighting line three up in Minnesota right now, just so mm. much courage and brilliance uh, coming from indigenous women leaders. Um, Casey Camp Hornick, uh, who who mm. is a Ponca yeah. Nation elder who's on our um, our board and her incredible wisdom and fighting on the Keystone XL pipeline to bringing rights of nature to her community. So I could just go on and on mm. naming amazing mm-hmm. women. Jackie Patterson, an incredible African-American leader here in the United States, um, working in communities, everything from, you know, working on uh, how to bring... Um, environmental justice to their communities to ensuring that they're represented in many different forums. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, wow. there's amazing women all over the world mm-hmm. who, who are leading the way. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just really honored uh, to be in, in collaboration and networking with them. Wow. So can you tell me um, where you see yourself uh, in the future with We Can? Uh, I guess, given the way things are going, that I will be doing this the rest of my life (laughs) and Mm -hmm. hopefully having some good victories and supporting women's leadership all over the world and, um, you know, hopefully turning this trajectory. I think we we have a very heavy lift ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I I think women's leadership will make all the difference in the world and that we just need to keep pushing forward on that agenda. Okay. Do you find that there's going to be more leaders coming up um, in the years to come who are basically, you know, making sure that, um, you know, the well nature nature's rights are being honored, and that we're doing more for our um, for this planet, you know, than than we have before. Well. I kind of look at it this way. I think the women leaders have always been there fighting for their communities, fighting for the land, mm. fighting for the water. I think it's more about the fact that because of gender mm. norms mm-hmm. that are unequal around the world, 
and uh, um, patriarchy mm -hmm. that is, um, you know, structural patriarchy in governments around the world. And yeah. as a mindset that those women have been invisibilized and underrepresented and underfunded. Mm -hmm. So I think they've always been there. I think what's changing very slightly and needs to change a whole lot more is visibilizing that work and supporting mm. that work. Okay. Okay. Wow. And so if anyone wanted to get involved with We Can, how would they go about it? Well, uh, the best way is to go to our website, which is www.wecan, W-E-C-A-N, mm -hmm. and then the whole word international spelled out. So www.wecaninternational.org, mm -hmm. and you can sign up for our newsletter. We do webinars, um, all kinds of things that people can interact with, and just to flag that... Um, this September 2021, from September 25th through the 30th, we're going to be uh, hosting a really awesome online, free, accessible, um, really exciting Women for Climate Justice Assembly mm. that's going to be having women leaders from all over the world, six days in a row, probably four hours of panels and keynotes and music and all kinds of things where you can just look at all these different topics on women in forest and women in climate policy wow. and women in water and women in food sovereignty and mm. indigenous leaders and well-known leaders. It's just going to be incredible. So that would be a great place to plug in. That would be awesome. Oh, my gosh. I plan on registering for that. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, what would you say to young people who might be interested in getting involved with We Can? Uh, sign up for our newsletter and we're always welcoming the youth. We support the youth and, um, you know, just, just we're, we have open arms and, and really believe in, in young people and really want to ensure that there's a future here for all of them. And uh, we'll be having a really powerful youth panel at the, um, at the summit, at the assembly I just mentioned. Oh, cool. And last question was be. If you could go back in time, what would you tell your younger self? Have confidence. Hmm. Wow. Well, Oreo, as, well, that's really amazing. Okay. Osprey, thank you so much for spending the time with me and, and um, for being so generous with your time and letting us know the, how much more work we have to do in terms of <laughs> making sure that we have... Um, a world in the future um, and I really appreciate all the um, all the uh, touch points and all your points of view on this and, and I can't wait to uh, um, register for the assembly and I hope that um, you know it goes well and, and I hope that uh, you know the, the work that you do continues well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all your good work to share information. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, and, and have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Osprey Oriole Lake on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Women. You can listen to Revolutionary Woman on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note. 
I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman. <laughs>